I'm Caroline Barron. I work on the history of London, and I got into doing manorial records through Mark Forrest, who is here today, who was at Royal Holloway and wanted to do a thesis on Chertsey Abbey, and I seem to be the only person of the estates of Chertsey Abbey to supervise him. So that's how I learnt about manorial records. It's from Mark, and Mark then worked on Surrey and Middlesex, and so the whole project got going. I'm very happy to be there. I'm very glad to be introducing Helen Watt, who is a very professional archivist and has worked on a number of research projects, began by working on the project, uh, the research, the Manor Documents Register for Wales, and has worked on other projects since then. And so she's going to talk to us about the early days, is it? The early days of the Manorial Documents Register, which, as you may know, is almost completed. Okay, Helen. Thank you very much for the introduction, and thanks very much for the invitation to speak here this afternoon. This year, we'll see the 25th anniversary of the start of the project to computerise the Manorial Documents Register, the MDR, and putting it online to continue its function, as Anna was saying this morning, as an official register of the location of known manorial records and to create a finding aid for historical research purposes which is much more flexible, easily accessible and widely available than ever before. So this afternoon I'd like to show how the Manorial Documents Register has been transformed from its original 1920s format to the online resource available today. And in doing so, I'd like to take you back to the early 1990s when the plan to computerise the MDR was put into action, uh, was conceived, and how the first project, that for Wales, was put into action and carried out, achieving the results you see today. And I have to admit that this is also something of a personal journey back in time for me, as I was involved in the computerisation of the MDR almost from the very start. But before that, I should say something a little bit more about the origins of the MDR, which was set up following the Law of Property Act 1922, which abolished copyhold tenure, as Anna was saying, and so more or less wound up the manorial system in England and Wales. Despite these measures, manorial documents relating to that form of tenure, particularly admissions and surrenders to former copyhold land, still retained some legal validity as to proof of title. So manorial documents were defined as court rolls, surveys, maps, terriers, documents and books of every description relating to the boundaries, wastes, customs or courts of a manor. But there were some documents included, these were deeds or other documents giving of evidence of title to a manor, records relating to compensation or documents created after the 31st of December 1925, although the current NDR does include some post-1925 documents and others, as we shall see. Therefore, it was essential to preserve these manorial records and knowledge of their whereabouts. And in 1924, an amendment to the Act placed the documents under the charge of the Master of the Rolls, who in 1926 ordered a register to be kept, showing the nature and location of the records to be maintained by him by the then uh, Public Record Office. Printed forms or returns such as this one here were used to give details of the manor name and parish and county in which the manor was believed to be situated, the custodian or the repository in which documents were kept, the identity of the lord of the manor and the steward, together with brief details of the documents, 
a description with covering dates and notes on their physical condition, as you can see, uh, as well as sources of, of information. The returns covered England and Wales and were compiled on a county-by-county -county basis. And in 1959, following the Public Records Act 1958, care of the register passed to the Royal Commission on <coughs> Historical Manuscripts, otherwise known as the Historical Manuscripts Commission, or HMC. A project then commenced to transfer the details from those old returns to a new slip index, but still kept county by county and within each county alphabetically by manner. And this is an example of one of those slips for Cambridgeshire, which, um, with which many of you, um, I'm sure, will be familiar from having referred to them at HMC at Quality Court or here at TNA in this form until quite recently. And then by 1992, when the project had converted all the returns for the English counties except for Yorkshire and part of Wiltshire, the decision was taken at HMC to computerise the register, beginning with Wales, for several reasons. The first was that this section of the register was in need of complete revision. And I, I've seen ones much worse than this, but this was the, the worst one I could find in the time. <laughs> As it, the Welsh section was all still in, in this, this original state, um, and it could be very difficult to use, not least because of the heavy annotations, and it was known not to be comprehensive particularly with regard to some very large collections held in the National <coughs> Library of Wales, NLU, such as Penrhys and Margam and Butte, on which Stephen Benham was working at the time. So out-of-date information on location of records had been discovered. And I think on this one you can see that, is this one that they've, they've changed the location? But certainly there are others. Uh, and also document references were inadequate or missing in most, most cases. And also, it was felt at the time that Welsh manorial records had been underused as a source for Welsh history in the past, and that an improved finding aid would go some way to rectify the situation. Therefore, a, pe a pilot project based on Pembrokeshire was carried out at HMC in 1992 by my colleague Mary Ellis, who unfortunately can't be here today. And in the early summer of 1993, while I was working at HMC on my first job after qualifying as an archivist, as a temporary backloader of the National Register of Archives, besides re revising the MDR slip, slip index for Cambridgeshire, I was also given the task of carrying out another part of the pilot to create a list of keywords to be used in the database for different types of manorial records. And I did this by taking a random sample of as many descriptions of records from the existing slip indexes, trying to locate as many different ways as possible in which similar types of documents had been described in the past and harmonising them into a resulting list of 42 terms. These form part of the project's descriptive standards and are still used today, and they're also available as the glossary on the online MDR as shown here. Following these pilots, the Welsh Manorial Records Database Project, Prosiect Cronvadata Llauscrive Minorol Cymraeg, was set up in collaboration between NLU and HMC. And I was lucky enough to be appointed the research officer on the project. And between October 1993 and October 1996, I worked in the then Department of Manuscripts and Records at NLU, 
from my very kind and extremely helpful supervisor, Alwyn Roberts, who was an absolute magician when it came to finding uncatalogued material and giving it a reference. Just go down to the stacks and come back with say, hey, here it is, you know, <laughs> brilliant. <laughs> I worked on the extensive quantity of documents held there, many in such very large collections as Badminton and Butte, as we mentioned before, in collaboration with two colleagues at HMC, Mary Ellis and Ros Bass. Mary dealt with records held in the Welsh County Record Offices and in private hands, and Ros with material here in the National Archives and at the British Library, among other repositories. I really can't remember if we had such a thing as email in those days, but we certainly kept in close contact by phone if any decisions had to be made. For example, if we thought there might be a potential new term that we might need, or whether a document could be classed as manorial or not. The first task, as with any English county project, was to make a definitive list of manors for each Welsh county in turn, carefully determining what was a manor and what not, and assessing the authority of sources of information used. And here are the principal general works of reference used in the Welsh project. For Wales, there's nothing comparable with the Victoria <coughs> County history, in which the manorial history of many English counties has already been researched. But there are some comprehensive volumes, for example, for Monmouthshire and Glamorgan, Bradney's A History of Monmouthshire, and Pew's Glamorgan County History, the third volume covering the Middle Ages. But since the end of the project, many more volumes of county histories have appeared, such as that for Merioneth, co-edited by Professor Beverly Smith and Dr. Hlinos Beverly Smith. Having drawn up a list of manners, the next step was to standardise the manor names. And this was also perhaps not such an easy task for Wales as it might be for England, as there's no overall equivalent of the English Place Name Society volumes for Wales, although there are one or two counties covered, such as Flintshire and Pembrokeshire, or there were at the time. So that two of the main general sources for standardisation of manor names were Melville Richards' Welsh Administrative and Territorial Units and Elwyn Davis's A Gazetteer of Welsh Place Names, although recently knowledge of Welsh place names has been revolutionised with initiatives such as the list of historic place names of the Royal Commission on the Ancient and Historical Monuments of Wales and Dr David Parsons' work at the Centre for Advanced Welsh and Celtic Studies in Aberystwyth on forms of Welsh place names dating before 1300. Unlike the subsequent English projects, no attempt was made to give the main parish in which each manor was located uh, this was considered to be a very complicated task and probably meriting a project in its own right. However, manors were linked with their lordships, which is the Welsh equivalent of honours. And one new aspect of the database since the Welsh project is the creation of an authority file for each manor. The method for working on the documents themselves was to take each county in turn, working from south to north, starting with Monmouthshire and Glamorgan, uh, which were felt perhaps to be most similar to, in manorial terms to English counties, so that by the time I'd reached the North Gwalian counties, Flintshire and Denbyshire, I might have more experience if I came across any unusual documents, um, such as were found for Denbyshire, and with the help of Dr. Hlinos Beverly-Smith, these were determined not to be classed as manorial records. They, they appeared to be similar to admissions and surrenders, sort of deeds, but they were used as evidence of title to customary land 
dating from the 14th to the 17th centuries, identified as having been created through the specifically Welsh custom of enrolling deeds on the Lord's records, similar to the enrolment of deeds such as bargains and sales on the doors of central government close roll. And as you've seen, because of the state of the original Welsh returns, details could not be simply loaded into the database from them straight away without thorough revision and upgrading. This meant that many documents identified from the MDR or various NLU lists and indexes had to be inspected first to provide full and accurate details for descriptions, covering dates, uh, and as well as to date undated material and give the location of uncatalogued material for the department's locations database. For me, this part of the work was brilliant. To save time and effort for already busy staff, I was allowed to take the keys to the strong room every day and spent a huge amount of time there in solitary splendour, working my way through large quantities of material. But with the help and companionship of others in the department, teaching me as much idiomatic Welsh as they possibly could, <laughs> and some of whom remain friends to this day. And among all the material indexed, I'd just like to highlight some of the um, manorial records, including some of the most extraordinary and outstanding documents discovered along the way at Enalu and elsewhere. For instance, there were some documents in Welsh, mainly either constables or foreman's oaths, or rules for holding courts, such as these instructions for the manor of Mainan in Carnarvonshire, dating from the early 19th century. I really wanted to find uh, an image of a document which um, starts the court off, oye, 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 but in Welsh it's grandeuch, grandeuch, grandeuch. And I think for one manor we even <coughs> found a rattle, uh, one, uh, which is like a football rattle, uh, which would call the court to order before they went into their grandeuch. And then documents located during the project covered the 13th to the 20th centuries. And at one end of this time span, there is a broken series of court rolls, 1262 to 1528, for the manor of Porthcaseg in Monmouthshire. This series is unusual in that it contains two of the very few manorial records in Enalu dating from the 13th century. And it's doubly unusual in that these documents constitute a rare survival of Welsh manorial records of a manor held by an ecclesiastical house. This was Tintern Abbey, and after the dissolution of the monasteries, um, later records for the manor show that it passed to lay ownership, that of the Earls of Worcester, or the then Earls of Worcester. And at the other end of the timescale, in Denbyshire, in the Lordship of Denby, a crown manor managed by the Crown Estates, an annual court was noted as recently as 2011 as being held for the management of stray sheep in the area. And some post-1925 records of this and a few other surviving courts are known to exist. I think there's Brithdir in Montgomeryshire or something like that. So this photograph held in Denbyshire archives presumably shows the court in action in the late 19th or early 20th century. But this is my favorite. One of the most outstanding documents ever discovered is the volume containing the survey with maps of the manors of Crickhowell and Tritower in Breconshire. And NLU note on their website, it's one of the earliest surveys produced in Britain of a holist carried out at a single scale using a single style and method. And they know that it's created by Robert Johnson, a well-known early modern surveyor. 
And here is one of the um, 46 exquisite maps of lands in the manors, showing lands around Tritower. And the whole magnificent volume is available to view online via NLU's website. I don't know if you can see the, um, the URL is at the bottom of the screen there. And then besides documents held in the National Library, there's a large quantity of material, court rolls, streets, surveys, valors and rentals held here in the National Archives among the public records. And as just one instance, as Philip mentioned, the uh, court rolls for the Manor Borough and Lordship of Rithin in TNA series SC2. It's a long series. It runs from SC2-21565 to SC2-2266, and they date between 1294 and 1610. And I think Philip had a little excerpt from the database, some data that actually been captured from the records, but it was the subject, as we can, we've heard, it was the subject of a project managed by Dr. Hlinos Beverly-Smith at what is now Aberystwyth University, which captured data from the documents uh, as a rich resource for historians of North Wales. Another very typical record held here in the National Archives is the parliamentary survey, included in the MDR, although not of manorial origin, relating to various types of lands, including manors, made under parliamentary commissions between 1649 and 1660, during the Commonwealth period, prior to sale of those lands. And here's one example for um, Breconshire, immediately identifiable by the distinctive sort of triangular heading. Having collected so much information on Welsh manorial records, either by editing or updating material, or providing new information, the database, when completed, was considered to contain references to all known Welsh manorial records, wherever they are held, or to documents known once, once to exist, but whose location is now unknown. The database was obviously the first and main outcome of the project, achieving the project's aim of creating a new online finding aid, and it's hoped that it now gives researchers the best possible means of locating the material relating to their research more quickly and easily than in the past, so that they no longer have to wade through all those original Welsh returns by county or by manor and hope that they'd been annotated with details of all the documents available or of interest to their research. Another important outcome was that towards the end of the Welsh project, Mary, Ros and I met in London to document the methods carried out during that project and so to create a manual for future work which is still in use today. And just before the Welsh project was completed, Judy Berg started work on a similar project for Yorkshire, followed by a project to work on the, on the records for Hampshire and the Isle of Wight. And the rest, you know, is history. <laughs> and then shortly after the, Welsh, the end of the Welsh project, another outcome was Ros's article on the computerisation of the MDR, which appeared in the Journal of the Society of Archivists. And lastly, at the end of the Welsh project in 1996, the National Library generously awarded me a Maxwell Fraser Fellowship for six months to produce a publication relating to that project. So with shameless self-publicity, here it is. <laughs> this work could not have been completed without the help of many people, but first and foremost, Michael Rogers, and it's great to see him here today. Yes, hello. <laughs> and... Uh, he wrote the introduction on the origins and development of the manorial system in Wales to the 16th century 
building on the work he had carried out on his doctorate with Rhys Davis on the medieval lordship of Bromfield and Yale. So as time has gone on and the completion of the computerisation of the English counties is nearly in view, I'm sure that everyone, including myself, is looking forward very much to the date when the last project is finished. But I will also always be very proud to be able to say that I helped complete work on the first. Thank you. Thank you very much, Helen. It was fascinating to see the origins, and I have to say those original slips with all that writing on them, I remember looking at some of those. And I know they're being kept somewhere and archived for somebody else to work on in due course, I think. Well, now, from the origins of the Manoir Documents Register, we'll move on. And Dr. Herbert Iden here, who works on the Victoria County history for Essex, I think is going to show... I mean, one of the things is we've been focusing on manners, not surprisingly, but, of course, another important unit was the parish. And the VCH does tend to focus on the parish. But I would say that when people are working on the Manoir Documents Register, the people who are doing the work on it, they always say that if there is a Victoria County history volume or volumes covering their county, their work is a lot easier than when there is not a VCH volume. And so we're very grateful that the VCH exists, and it'll be interesting to hear what Herbert has to say about the development of the, well, the indispensability of manorial records for the VCH. But I would say the VCH is also indispensable for the manorial documents register. <laughs> yes, um, uh, thank you very much for these kind words. So I will say something about what the Victoria County history is. The Victoria County history, or short VCH, founded in 1899 and originally dedicated to Queen Victoria, hence the name. We are always, we, we, we are not very happy with the name because people say, oh, you are the Victorian history, you are doing 19th century. And this curtails our funding efforts um, to a certain extent. So the, but the VCH is the greatest concerted publishing project in English local history, researching English, England's places and people from the earliest times to the present day. In 2012, Queen Elizabeth II agreed to rededicate the series as part of her Diamond Jubilee Year celebrations. The central VCH office, based at the Institute of Historical Research in the University of London, coordinates historians working in counties across England. The VCH has, without doubt, built an international reputation for scholarly standards. And I was invited two years ago at an international conference in Tübingen in Germany to give a talk on the state of local history in England. And I was probably wasn't the first choice, but I was the only one who was prepared to go to Germany <laughs> as a German. I have to say, all the people from all, there were uh, talks from people from Romania, from Greece, from uh, Norway, um, they all envied uh, England for the VCH. The Essex part of the project is managed locally by the VCH Essex Trust, with, which raises the funds to support the professional historians appointed as consultant editors to research and write the volumes. The University of London is responsible for planning the series, ensuring high academic standards, and for publishing the volumes in collaboration with the Trust. The objectives and guiding principles of VCH research are the main publication series of the VCH comprises large hardback books, the so-called and hopefully instantly recognizable red books. 
The text should be based as far as possible on primary evidence rather than on existing secondary sources, although these should always be consulted, of course. The VCH has always thought to work from primary sources to try to prevent the recycling of misleading information, therefore the workplace's emphasis upon research in the National Archives, the British Library, in our case the Essex Record Office, and other county and private archives. The evidence on which every statement in the text is based should be supported by a footnote citing the source from which the information has been taken. A VCH account does not cover every topic in detail, but provides information which will enable future researchers to cover the subject in more depth. The Red Books are a work of reference for heritage professionals, students, family and house historians. The main work is undertaken by, undertaken by professional historians trained to PhD level with knowledge in local historical sources. Each place is researched using comprehensive checklists of sources. Like in most counties, Essex VCH works with volunteer contributors who gather material and run special projects. To give you an example from Essex, the Clacton VCH group initiated in 22 to help with the research of Clacton in the Second World War has recently successfully finished their HLF-funded two-year project exploring a lost coastal landscape in Essex, the Gunfleet, Estuary and Holland Haven, which was based on documentary research and field work. The information gathered fed into VCH Essex Volume 12, currently in publication, and more popular style educational reports and images published on the VCH Explore website, as well as events, exhibitions and display boards um, on either side of the former estuary, which were unveiled in July 2016. Because uh, of the encyclopedic nature of the VCH, a clear template to ensure consistency of approach is required. Each parish history is arranged around six, on occasion seven, standard topic headings. The seventh is if we have a, like this is a picture of St. Osis Abbey, if we have uh, St. Osis as a parish, then we, because of the high density of vernacular buildings, we have a built environment section at the end to uh, specially uh, deal with, with architecture, uh, architectural history at the end. So we have an introduction, which is landscape, communication, settlement, population and buildings, then land ownership, economic history, social history, religious history and local government. Information from manorial documents is crucial for any and sometimes all of the chapters. Historic landscape reconstruction might be based, in addition to 19th century tithe maps, on early estate maps. Sometimes the first reference to a road or a bridge can be found in a manorial cordial or a terrier, and this would then go under our section subheading communications in the introduction. Pre-census, the sketchy population data can be supplemented by tenant lists or the examination over time of the lists of chief pledges recorded. A proper account of the pattern of land ownership in a parish, and in particular the descent of the manorial lordship or lordships, if there was more than one manor in a parish, relies heavily on a good series of manorial records. Occasionally evidence from court rolls can correct information given in standard, or reference, uh, standard secondary or reference literature. For example, according to the complete peerage, Thomas Darcy, 1st Earl Rivers, about 1565 to 1640, was granted the title Viscount Colchester in 1621, 
but examination of a Manoria cordrol for Great Holland indicates that he was described as Viscount Colchester at least two years earlier, as this cordrol is dated 24th of July 1619. These are the highlights of a VCA's researcher. <laughs> an account of the economic history of a parish is expected to provide an outline of the tenural structure of the manor or manors, and in particular of the balance between the demean and tenant holdings and between free and unfree tenures. Account rolls can shed light on these structures as well as offer information about the working of the demean or the demeans, including the nature of crop and livestock production, fishing and forestry, or evidence for labor services and other incidents of boon works. Valuations of tenants' rents and successive inquisitions post-mortem as evidence of changing estate income might be supplemented by manorial extents. Court leads with view of Frank Pledge, and we heard about the importance of court leads before, are excellent sources for the study of the social character and cohesion of a community, in particular during the Middle Ages. Local customs, such as the inheritance custom of the manor for copyhold, was either written down in a separate customal or mentioned in the rental. In Great Holland, for example, it was ultimogeniture or borrow English where the youngest son or male heir inherited. There are also examples of this practice in manorial court cases for Great Holland in 1568, 1581 and 1602. And this is quite peculiar because all the parishes around have partible inheritance or um, at least not ultimogeniture. Occasionally, court rolls reveal the names of chaplains and vicars, which will then go into the religious history which are otherwise un not known, for example, in debt cases or when they got into trouble with their neighbors. And I will give an example at the end of this, of my talk. Like the chapter on land ownership, the one on local government is based extensively on manorial records as the focus of this section is on the manor courts and the role they played in managing the community's affairs. The court's jurisdiction has to be established. Was it solely that of a court baron? dealing with manorial business only, i.e. the admissions and the surrender of copyhold land? Or was it also a court lead dealing with other matters such as policing, minor civil pleas, maintenance of roads, etc.? Which and how many officers were appointed? So you had ale tasters or the constables were appointed sometimes, um, the reefs obviously. Um, the existence of a court lead is of significance as it often died away and its powers were displaced by county administration and quarter sessions from the late 16th to and early 17th century. But in many small villages and towns and, and villages, the court lead remained effective as a forum for local government and regulation until much later. I hope I have highlighted the crucial importance of manorial records for VCH research and made clear that the first port of call when starting research for parish history has to be the manorial documents register. In fact, that it is now online facilitates the work of VCH editors and historians in general hugely. However, as the MDR acknowledges on its manorial definition side, the MDR is and cannot be, quote, a definitive list of all manners which existed, but only records the names and manners for which documents were or may have been created, and that it records the existence of documents, not the existence of manners." So every student who researches the history of a parish 
should be aware that there might have been more manners than those listed on the MDR. In order to show you how VCH research could help supplement the invaluable resources offered by the MDR, I would like to give two examples that my colleague in Essex, Chris Thornton, and I came across in our recent work on the history of the parishes in the Tendering Hundred and in the northeast of Essex. The aforementioned Great Holland Manor has an excellent series of cordrolls and several rentals dating back to 1545 and running up to 1926. As the MDR correctly, and this is here on the left side, correctly states, unfortunately it's a bit blurred, as they correctly states, their current location, location is not known because the owner had reclaimed the documents at some time in the past from the Essex Record Office. However, the ERO holds a complete set of microfilms of the documents in question. An historian relying solely on the MDR and then familiar with the ERO might therefore overlook the existence of these copies. I do not know what the procedure of the MDR is with microfilm copies, but presumably if they can be verified as true copies of the originals, I would have thought that they could be incorporated into the MDR. The second example is one is Landermere Hall or Landmere Hall in Thorpless Soken. Um, this manor does not come up in the search of the MDR, although it produced manorial records, a rental of, of uh, about 1600 and a terrier, which is the other example, a terrier from 1569. Both are in the custody of the Essex Record Office. And oops, the interesting thing is that this DDL M17 shows up at the MDR, but only for the manors of Great Fordham and for uh, uh, Books Hall in Bowman, alias Bowman's in West Burgold. I'm not giving these examples to criticize, but to, su to suggest how gaps in the MDR can be closed in order to make it even a more complete record. I'm sure the MDR cooperates with all county archives, but if the help of the VCH county editors could be enlisted, perhaps by creating a simple template in which VCA staff can input information about omitted documents that they came across in their county and local research. This might be for the benefit of the MDR and its users. Also, occasionally VCH staff make discoveries about unhitherto unknown manorial records and hopefully can persuade holders of records to deposit them at the local uh, record office. I will finish my paper with an example from my current research on Harwich and Dover Court. This is from a, from a, a, a state plan a detail. In order to show how the information that the VCH takes from court rolls is simply the tip of an iceberg of really rich historical material. The slides, they show an extract from the Harwich court roll of the 11th of June, 1407. Although one manor, Dover Court cum, cum Harwich, there were separate court sittings for the two communities by the end of the 14th century. The heading of the court, Curia Com Leter Ibidem Tenta, provides information for the local government chapter. So we know this would go in the local government chapter. It has a lead and not only a court baron. The proceeding starts with a few debt and trespass cases and are followed by two interesting lines before the list of the chief pledges. So this is this, which uh, read in translation, on behalf of the queen, it is commanded that all tenants with the lordship should help and support the constables in their duties of arresting and pursuing, you may add, offenders, upon pain of 40 shillings. 
This confirms that Queen Joan of Navarra, the second wife of Henry IV, was in possession of the manor of this, at this time. And according to, because we know only, or we knew from an Inquisition post-mortem from April 1407, so a few months before this, that Queen Joan held the manor and took the profit since the execution of Thomas Mowbray in 1405, the, was the Earl of Norfolk. But the title, and the title why she's taking it is unknown. But here we have corroboration by a manorial document. But I want to draw your attention to the lengthy entry at the end of the court roll, which starts from here at Quart Nicholas Cook. Just before the election of the ale tasters and the constables, which is down here. <coughs> this is a grim yet fascinating entry listing several misdemeanors of a certain Nicholas Cook. And I translate. And they say that Nicholas Cook, once of Harwich, chaplain, assaulted Robert Chapman about the middle of the night in the house of the said Robert with the intent to kill him. And he burgled his house against the peace of the king. He's immersed sixpence. And the same Nicholas assaulted William Clark on the eve of Easter last at the font in the church of Harwich, another sixpence. And that the same Nicholas assaulted the hermit of Fakenham Dam. Fakenham Dam is the Hampton Priory in Norfolk, is an Augustine Canon Priory, at Harwich, and seizing from him letters of the Archbishop of Canterbury, another sixpence. <laughs> and that the same Nicholas unjustly and without reason harassed the tenants of the Queen day by day before the constables and the marshal of the disheritance of the said lady and the molestation and obstruction of her tenants, another sixpence. It is unclear, by the way, which constables and which marshal are meant here. Cook might have sued tenants of the manor in the royal household, uh, household court of the Marshalsea, but this is speculation at this time. We, we just or I just embarked on research. On. However, the most chilling crime is reported in the final entry. And the same Nicholas spoke with Emma, wife of John Horold, to sleep with her. And when the said Emma did not want to assent to the said Nicholas, he deviously and maliciously put a certain corrosive in her eye so, so that the said Emma lost her eyesight. Twelve pence. So there is the corrosinum in oculis prefato Emma. Nicholas Cook will feature in the chapter on religious history as a chaplain in St. Mary's at the beginning of the 15th century, and his crimes will be mentioned briefly in the social history section. But this case certainly deserves closer attention that can be given in a VCH account. It is the first historical example I came across of what has sadly become the quite modern crime of an acid attack. Thank you for your attention. to turn to Dr. Nick Barrett, who's going to talk to us. He's director of the Senate House Library, but I should tell you he is also a professor of public history at the University of Nottingham and a teaching fellow at the University of Dundee. He's also the president of the Family History Society, and that is another use for which manorial documents can be employed, is to help trace families. Perhaps we've focused so far largely on the medieval manorial documents, but they actually go on until the early 20th century, and perhaps some of the more recent ones are perhaps most useful to people who are doing family history, and I think perhaps Nick is going to talk to us about that, among other things. So, thank you very much, Nick. Thank you very much indeed. I seem to be wearing three hats. I'll throw in a fourth, and that is as a medieval historian. So, not to 
underplay what Caroline's just said, I do want to look at a different take on the material that form the basis of the manorial documents register. Because, of course, one of the great benefits of putting this material online is to create that breadcrumb trail for people to find. So they can then actually go to the archive and look at the material. So that's really where this whole concept of personal heritage comes from. It isn't family history. It's not local history. It's not even looking at property. It's a combination of all of them. In many ways, delving into some of the socio-economic uses that the manorial court records and associated documents were actually creating in the first place. So I see MDR online as an enabler. And later on, I just want to illustrate how that's been of enormous value over the years on a few of the media-related projects that I've had a look at. The problem with many TV shows is that they cut out the process. And maybe that's just as a technical research historian, but that's the bit I love the most. It is that detective process that makes it so exciting. And MDR is that bridge. It allows you to find where material is. So you've still got that thrill of discovery. And the case studies I've chosen in many ways fall before around about 2007 when we start to get the mass digitization and transcription of a huge range of name-rich data sets. In particular, the census returns, but also quite a lot of the birth, marriage, death indices, and increasingly probate records, and of course today, a whole range of alternative data sets. It's interesting that manorial documents do not necessarily have that level of indexing attached, although just in preparation for this, I was handed produced by the Wiltshire Family History Society, an emerging project that actually starts to go through the records and create name indexes. So in many ways, there's a great example, potentially in the future, of linked data coming together. And I think this is where the Federation has come in, looking to provide access to content so that some of the work on the ground, the army of volunteers who will go out and create that level of metadata, can then make the material far more discoverable. And that, I think, is the value of personal heritage. By finding names online, there should be a thread back to the original records of a far greater variety, so that you're getting that enriched depth. Uh, programs like Who Do You Think You Are show you the value of why we do this sort of activity. It's not just about collecting names. It's about understanding that people live lives not in isolation, but affected by their neighbours and their community. Their physical environment, be that the house in which they lived, or the village, or town, or city. And I think more importantly, how the sweep of the past played out and affected their lives, or how their lives contributed to that sweep of history. The manorial documents, not just the court rolls, but a whole range of other associated material, allow people to identify individuals, but also undertake some of that journey. And that's the great thing, being a medieval historian and with some of the case studies I'll come to, I do tend to focus on some of the earlier records. That's our bread and butter. But the richness, the entry, often comes from the 19th and 18th century records, where you are starting to find that really important societal shift from one form of local administration to something entirely different, driven by industrialization, increased population, and drift towards the cities. So personal heritage, in many ways, is a fusion of these techniques, and it links into this wider sphere of public history, 
because there tends to be a different demographic, a different group who are going into archives and using resources like MDR to find those pieces of information. And I think this is where we often forget or aren't aware of some of the benefits that our work have produced to individuals, not just in finding information and learning more about where someone lives or their locality, but some of the ways this activity has been put to greater good. There's a whole range of benefits from this style of personal investigation into the past. We've seen it used, and there are examples up and down the country, around local archiving and heritage that sit outside of the state archive system, sits outside business records. This is often user-generated content which adds real depth and value to our knowledge of local society. But also it's playing into schools. The Ride Social Heritage Group, for example, undertook a transcription project linked to their patch of land, which then allowed schools to come in and learn about the records, which then benefited them and they began to realise the value of their community. Similarly, by putting some of that material online, but keeping control of that, and I don't necessarily mean putting it through a filter via a third-party platform, they were able to bring people into that area and track what they did. They went into hotels and spent money in restaurants and interacted with the user groups and brought their collections. So there was a really interesting uplift in the value of those records at a local level. Many people have looked at light-touch personal heritage when dealing with societal problems. Uh, one project that I worked on went into a prison service and tried a sort of a, a twin-track approach to people coming up for parole. One group identified particular vocational uses for research. Others started to look at their own family and local history, partly to identify inspirational characters from the past they wished to emulate, what sort of vocation might lie in the midst of time, and perhaps something they could then train and really feel a kinship towards. And when we compared the two groups, those who had undertaken the standard vocational training had the sort of industry standard reoffending rate. Those who'd undergone this more personal immersion in records and connection back into their personal timeline and that of the community, the reoffending rate was virtually zero. So there's a really interesting interplay. And of course, the more we can connect people with place and show that they do have a story that's relevant, the more we can start to emulate and possibly replicate these techniques. There's even a growing line of research that shows that there's a really strong link between connecting one's personal timeline with well-being. And the more we archive ourselves and link that to community projects, the more we run the risk of moving away from dementia and other such activities. So, that's really an introduction, just trying to show that the use of the memorial documents register is probably far wider than perhaps we originally thought. Yes, it supports fantastic projects like the VCH, and that sort of symbiotic research relationship is so important. But that then itself opens up the material to a far wider range of uses than perhaps we could have possibly imagined 25 plus years ago when the project, as we've heard from Helen, first started to make that material available one to many via computers and then obviously through the internet. I do think media does play a part, even though process is eradicated from shows like Who Do You Think You Are and some of the examples I'm going to uh, talk about shortly, but it does show the value of the outputs and it has also stirred up a huge amount of historical debate. The first 
example I want to draw you to is from Wales. And this comes from an old show called History Mysteries. Uh, the mystery is why it was never recommissioned, but there we go. Um, and what we tried to look at were contentious local history debates or discussions and see if we could, with our team of archaeologists and architectural historians and document researchers, just add a different light. This went out ooh, 12, 13 plus years ago. And one example that came to light was the story of Penigrin, which is the house, which was linked to the manor of Abba, or Abba Garth Kellen. And the debate ran, well, this was long connected to Llewellyn af Griffith, the last independent Prince of Wales, who died in 1282, resisting Edward I, but actually killed by local politics, handed over um, by his own potential supporters. And the debate had long ranged, where was his palace? We know from contemporary uh, records that he was establishing a base. We have also got from archaeological evidence nearby this particular property a fortified site. But the actual place that he settled and would have received various dignitaries as he was building up his diplomatic activity was unknown. And the site had been identified in three or four different places. Penny Bryn had obviously been changed over many, many centuries. Um, a lot of Tudor reconstruction and modelling there, this engraving from 1811. But it was clearly a site of some importance. And the key that unlocked what we interpreted to be a different interpretation of this site came from looking at the manorial documents. Not way back when, from the 1280s at first, but through a succession of land transactions focused on the lordship of the manor of Abba. And in one of those, which referred to a marriage settlement, a lot of the plots of land were referred to quite specifically. One was of very much uh, importance linking the site of Penny Bryn to the court, the uh, place where many of the manorial transactions would have taken place. And that was the thread. That was the link. We used MDR to track down quite a lot of those court records and managed to compare the consistency of where this particular field was in relation to the property. Being able then to lead to a final survey of the manor of Abba just after it had been taken away from Clewellyn into the hands of the Crown in 1283, which was the final piece of the jigsaw. So we were able to posit that this probably was the site of where Clewellyn had undertaken quite a lot of his activities and would have been the original manor house, which caused quite a stir at the time, which was a good thing because that debate has prompted a whole range of different opinions to come forward, but also a great deal of research focusing on those manorial records. It brought to play a whole range of different family histories who had also interacted with the site. So by using the online MDR, and by challenging some of those preconceived wisdoms around the use of the site, we were able then to further scholarship, but also engage with local communities who also brought forward their information, which had often been locked away in personal archives. The jury is still out. Uh, recent archaeological evidence suggests that there was probably another palace complex closer to the fort, but also equidistant to this site. So we don't think this site has lost its historic importance, quite the opposite. It's making us challenge how this emerging administration would have worked. The manorial administration, potentially linked to the site of Penny Bryn, 
with the fort and then a potential palace complex. So it's actually raised more questions than answers. This slide probably needs a bit of explaining because it's clearly got nothing to do with manorial records on the surface. For those who aren't familiar with popular culture, uh, that's John Chalice uh, reprising his role as Boise from Fools and Horses in a follow-up series, The Green, Green Grass of Home. And this was particularly relevant because when we looked at doing a series called House Detectives at Large in 2002, John suggested his house, which was the site of Wigmore Abbey, which is the filming location for The Green, Green Grass of Home, which is why I managed to get that slide up. Um, <laughs> Once again, the manorial documents form part of the wider context of what we wanted to do. A large part of the focus was to investigate how the abbey worked. He lives in what would have been the abbot's lodgings, but he was fascinated by the idea that the abbey had this relationship with the honour of Wigmore, the Mortimer family, which of course allowed us to go and tell the story of Roger Mortimer and Isabella and Edward II and his rather untimely demise. And, but we wanted to really focus on what life was like on the ground. What records would survive to tell us what was going on at that really local level of administration? What was life like for the monks in the abbey? How did they then have this relationship with many of the people that they were supporting through the manners that they would be assigned to manage? What was the relationship between the abbey and the Mortimers and the wider lordship? So it turned into an investigation of a very distant piece of history, but one that we could bring to life through the people. And again, this comes back to my point, that looking at local history without understanding the people and the interplay with place simply doesn't work. Likewise with family history, you have to understand that local context of what was going on. And we found some very interesting snippets, of one of which related to an inquisition which went through and recited some of the reasons why the Mortimer family fell out of favour not obviously for just the fact that they may well have been involved with killing the king, but for a whole range of transgressions over time as well, building up the case against them. Uh, one in particular, where we see the court of Wigmore, the local jurisdiction of Edmund, clashing with that of the king in the later 14th century. And I quote, um, Edmund could not deny that he had tried the said felon in his own court of Wigmore, thus injuring the liberty of the king, manifestly contrary to his crown and dignity. So there is a really interesting tension of how competing jurisdictions played out, which we found by looking at the court records to see what had happened. And indeed, he had tried the felon in question, mainly at the behest of Bogo the bailiff, of the court who had come in and tried to intervene. This whole issue was resolved because the court and the lordship was then forfeit to the crown. But the king allowed Edmund to be immersed for 100 marks and that Edmund, in token of the restitution of the liberty of the king mentioned above, should grant to the bailiff an effigy of the felon in question with name and locality and the effigy should be hung instead. So the felon seems to have got off and instead they're hanging the effigy for a year and a day in the place to the point where the piece of ground was then called Gallows Acre. So a lovely local story that can be then resolved by looking at the court records and seeing that interplay between the different jurisdictions. It then said the family of Mortimer, which is now utterly extinct, I think rubbing the point home, and then recited all of the manners so we were able to then pass this information on to John. 
he was fascinated by this sort of worm's eye view of the past. And indeed, as we've heard from Herbert, we get the sense of what actually was going on and that not all was as it seemed. We ended up coming up with a list of the seven deadly sins of some of the monks that were in the abbey and what the local people thought because they constantly reappeared in the manorial courts. We found that there was evidence of envy when Jankin Lightfoot, doorkeeper of the infirmary of the abbey, repeated private conversations amongst the brothers to other brothers of the house and secular men, thus creating much discord amongst them on behalf of the fact that everyone assumed they had a much greater life than they did. There was evidence of sloth. The seats in the cloister were not in a sufficient state of repair or carpentry, and as a result, the brothers deserted their books and studies and wandered everywhere as they pleased. Gross dereliction of duty there. Gluttony. Food above a certain amount is not to be demanded in future, and the brothers should be satisfied with the amount they are given. So clearly there's some criticism being surfaced through the records. Avarice. The abbot permitted brothers to carry on trading transactions with secular men contrary to canonical statutes. Maybe, but that sort of economic relationship was really interesting, trying to see what those transactions might be and how they benefited the local community. Pride. Friends and relations of some of the brothers were sustained in the house, given food, clothing and goods at the expense of the house. Lust. Thomas Dale despoiled Isabel Barber, and he also despoiled Isabel Bach. And finally, wrath. John Clone left the monastery because he feared death from John Eaton. So by looking into a whole series of investigations from the 13th to the 15th century, a long time before we start to get the dissolutions inquiries, we do get a sense of a very turbulent relationship between abbey, monks, and their manorial duties that many were then criticising them for either neglecting or overstepping the mark. And that was a really interesting way in. And once more, it was the manorial documents registered that allowed us to go to different locations, not just the Herefordshire Record Office, but a lot of material at the National Archives as well. The final example is one of a number of examples that I could have given, where we looked at a more sort of humble level of house history, and again, how people passed through, and used the manorial system for benefit, not just their own financial gain, but in the case here, one a little bit broader. Um, this rather gruesome imagining of what a 16th century school would look like, uh, which uh, hangs over the Slavic reading room in the Stirling Memorial Library at Yale, um, with the beating of a child and all sorts of things, is relevant to this next story, because it was a privately owned house in North or in Hertfordshire called The Grange. And we were looking at this for a programme called Hidden House History from 2006. Now, the architecture was a very jumbled mix of styles, but we felt that there was, lurking at the core, a Tudor building struggling to be heard. And so a lot of the information that we gathered was all around the evolution of the house. But I was fascinated by the relationship between the house and a few plots of land, a bit like the scene with Penny Bryn. And it was one of those areas from a genealogical perspective, following the family, that we started looking at the different sets of documents you would need to crack it. One thing that struck us was the fact that, firstly, it did have some land attached and it clearly had a community use. There was a well or a couple of wells on site. And we were just wondering how we can investigate this further. Now, whenever we do house history, we do a series of 
national searches and the valuation office records, um, but also the tithe apportionments. And on looking at the tithe maps, we noticed that each of the fields had some lettering attached to it, C, L, or F. And it was one of those ah moments that they relate to copyhold, leasehold, or freehold. And this is where the modernity of manure records come into play, because we were able, through the fact that quite a lot of our plots of land were listed as copyhold, to jump straight from the tithe apportionments into the court rolls. And then it was the expressway back. Whilst there were elements of retention in families, we were able to go straight back to the late 1590s. And in the court roll, we find a plot of ground being assigned to a family who were moving in because they wished to build a new house upon the site. So they could lease it out and use the rent from that property to found a charitable school in London to help the poor of the area. Now, you wouldn't have found that out from any other source. It was that link from tithe to court rolls, court rolls to entry, that suddenly opened up a completely new interpretation of how this house would have been used, or rather conceived in the first place, which was fantastic to the owner because they were involved in an education charity helping poor people in London. So it felt as though the house had gone full circle, which was a lovely conclusion for them. So hopefully what I've tried to do in this slot is so that we may start out with the best of intents or a clear idea of what a resource is going to do. But years, decades down the line, that knock-on effect goes in all sorts of weird and unimaginable ways. Yes, we can use this for academic endeavours, as we should, to understand better the flow of history in our local communities and cascade that up as a research resource to national level. But let's not forget that individual impact. And I think this is where the future of NDR and a lot of the work that we've heard about today and possibly some of these local groups comes together. I firmly believe, as I, as I said at the beginning, that conducting research online is great, we can get the information, but it's when you come offline and go into the field or go into the archive or go back onto the site that it comes to life in a completely new way. You learn more skills you see things in a very different way. And by multi-layering both sources and research focus, you get that richness and depth that you simply don't get by interacting with material in a digital format. So I will conclude, and I think as a panel, I open up for questions by thanking the endeavors of everybody who's put these records online, firstly from creating them, and secondly, over the last 25 years, for making the access possible but then maybe exhort all of us to find similar projects where we can go even further, get that granularity and get more people back into the archives and experiencing the joys of this sort of research. Thank you very much. This podcast is copyright the National Archives. All rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence.